This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anand, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. Cichlids are a beautiful and highly diverse group of fishes in the aquarium hobby that come primarily from Africa and the Americas. Cichlids from the Americas, known as New World cichlids, include angelfish, discus, and oscars. But these species are just the tip of the iceberg. One of the largest groups is the Cichlosoma complex, including the Salvini, Lowland, Redhead, and Firemouth cichlids. Don Conkle is the owner of Don Conkle's Tropicals, based near Tampa, Florida, with additional facilities in Costa Rica and Mexico. Don is a leading cichlid authority and published author, and has been breeding cichlids since 1975. He currently specializes in production and importation of the American cichlids from North and Central America, including those of the Cichlosoma complex. He also works with endangered fish species in these areas. Join us as we talk to Don about his business, his favorite fish, and what hobbyists need to know to succeed with these species. We'll be right back after these messages. It's designerpetsweaters.com. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready. Large or small, we fit them all. Designerpetsweaters.com Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Don Conkle, owner and operator of Don Conkle's Tropicals. Hi, Don. Thanks again for being with us today. Appreciate it. So you've got such a long history in the hobby, and I know you've been breeding fish for, for decades. What first got you involved in the hobby? Well, in 1972, um, I'd grown up here in Florida since 1967, and I was involved in an electrocution, an accident, where I lost a half of my left front foot. During June 1972, I was um, in the hospital for seven months, and I had to return home to my parents, where I laid in bed for the next six months. During that time, my father bought me an aquarium, and uh, I, uh, he went out and purchased me one pair of large red devils, the Midas cichlid, the citronellus. And I had bred them, and uh, it was a, a source of entertainment. It, it helped me medically. It helped me uh, mentally uh, recover during those recuperation years. It sounds like the, uh, the aquarium and the, the Red Devils were really great therapy for you then, Don. That's correct. And so going from breeding this pair to you know, your, your huge operation, how did that, how did that happen? Well, uh, um, in 1980, I had uh, made a lot of letters. Um, I've been keeping fish between 1972, but in 1976, I, did, I bought some property in Odessa, Florida, just north of the airport, about 10 miles. 
and um, and being I had uh, ten acres to play with besides horses, I decided I wanted to carry on my love for these tropical fish, so I built uh, a tropical fish hatchery, about uh, two thousand square foot. I built a bunch of uh, concrete vats and um, tried to get all the fish that I could. Uh, many were more live bears at that time, but I found my love to be with cichlids as uh, of their personality. They're um, coming to the person in the aquarium compared to doing the community tanks that I had acquired of uh, the fish from various retail shops in Clearwater, Florida. So then uh, I built this complex, the beginning, my first building uh, during the 1976 area. And uh, then in 1980, I came into contact with the late Stuart Grant out of Lake Malawi. Stuart had told me, Don, you spend $10,000, you make 100 grand within a year. Well, he wasn't quite correct, but he was very close. I started dealing with the uh, fishes, uh, the cichlids from Lake Malawi during that period of 1980 and uh, started uh, importing the fish and sending them uh, out uh, to most of the farmers. I wasn't connected on a national level at that point but just a local level uh, selling to the local fish farms. Okay. So how did you make the leap from the Africans to the, the uh, New World cichlids? Well, it's a matter of business. My degree's in business. Um, it wasn't anything to do with uh, microbiology, uh, but I was a naturalist at heart uh, having the farm. And um, I realized that um, it was really instrumental in 1984 Five, uh, really preceding that, in 1983, I met uh, the late Ross Sokoloff. Ross was like the pioneer uh, those days in Central American cichlids, which he was collecting with Harry Greer in Belize and a little bit of Guatemala. These were big fish. Uh, I really like the personality compared to the African cichlids, who are the flock species. The Central American cichlids uh, bonded off, and uh, I was uh, particularly infatuated with their post parental bike care. And at that point, there were no exporters in uh, Central America. And I thought, well, what a good thing. I had dealt with 100 species from Africa for the last three years, from 80 to 83. And uh, I thought, well, I'll take these expeditions uh, to Central America. At the same time, uh, in 1983, that I met Ross Sokoloff, I came into touch with Dr. Paul Oisel. Paul is uh, one of the ACA, the American Cichlid Association founders. And I employed him to take expeditions with me to Central America to obtain broodstock sources. So we started several expeditions between Mexico and Panama, brought the animals back, and I ventured into Central American cichlids. Then in 1985, I visited the, um, Europe at uh, Zoofish. It's one of the big, uh, by, uh, every two years they have their big uh, European uh, shows. And um, that's when the OFI uh, asked me, I wanted to join the Ornamental Fish Importers Group, and they said, no, you cannot do it. You have exclusivity with Pierre Brichard from Lake Tanganyika and uh, uh, Stuart Grant from Lake Malawi, and we won't allow you to join unless you release that exclusivity. Well, I slept on it all night in Wiesbaden, Germany, and I said, okay, I'll do that. There was another gentleman named Leif de Maison of uh, Old World Cichlids in Homestead, and the agreement was that if I let Leif de Maison come into uh, the American market, that they would allow me to join OFI. Needless to say, I did that to join that group, which was really one of the biggest mistakes of my life. I felt very little value out of the OFI in subsequent years. Nevertheless, uh, during that time period, as Leif 
had uh, started importing fishes from Lake Malawi, I saw the competition to be great. I saw the fact that uh, Leif was selling to many tropical fish farms in Florida, and as we know, the more farmers there are, the less the profits are. So I expanded more into Central America, into the various countries, because there were no exporters. With my uh, business uh, sense and my mental aptitude, it was a sure thing that these brand new species from Central America were a great lucrative venture for me uh, to go into. So I transferred over to Central American cichlids purely from a business sense, but then realized more and more that the behavior of these fishes would take the, uh, the United States in, in a big storm. At that same time period, I started uh, getting away from dealing with tropical fish farmers in Florida and doing all my shipping across the United States and Canada. Okay. So that, that explains kind of your transition. What are your, the fish coming from primarily in terms of uh, countries? Where, where would you say your, your major countries of origin well, are? I, uh, they, well, basically, I have a farm in Jaco, Costa Rica, where we farm uh, cichlids uh, from the Isthmian province. Uh, that being uh, the southernmost province in Central America, the water's slightly different uh, than the northern Usumacinta province. I have a, a, an export compound in Villahermosa, Mexico, and uh, another in uh, uh, San Pedro Sula, Honduras. So my fishes basically encompass the two great fish regions, the Usumacinta province, which is Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, and Belize, and the southernmost fish province, which is the San Juan province of Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and Panama. Okay. So given that there are so many species of fish, what would you, if you had to choose maybe a couple what are your top maybe two or three species that you, you personally like? Well, personally, um, I've always liked the fish Carpentis. Uh, it's a lacustrine. It's actually a eutropic fish, meaning that it has many territories. It goes from uh, salt water out uh, four to five miles uh, into the Caribbean Ocean, into the, uh, the rivers of Panuco, into the lakes and the lagoons of Chiril and Escondido near Tampico. It's a brilliant fish that uh, has been as popular since I first brought this animal in 83 as it is today. When I look at the riverine or rheophilic fish from the rivers, I particularly care for the uh, Perineatropolis group, of, of, of which are uh, Nebulaferis, Bulleri, and Gibbiceps. They uh, exhibit marine colors, as most all these cichlids do, because cichlids are as from Central America and around the world are secondary pierciforms. They evolve from marine fish into freshwater fish. They have those vibrant, uh, iridescent, and metallic colors that marine fish exhibit, yet they're freshwater oriented. Okay. So since you, um, you mentioned a little bit about your facility, can you describe the facility here in Florida? What are your, I guess, structures for raising the fish? How do they differ between the, the lake and the riverine species? Can you go into that a little bit? Sure thing. Well, the, uh, the lake fish or the lacustrine fish basically will take the substrate of here in Tampa, Florida, as well as all of Florida. They're hard water fish. Central America animals have the same requirements of chemistry, uh, water chemistry that we have here in Florida. So it was a natural to do fishes that were easy for me to breed. Uh, I had developed uh, 130 ponds in 1986 and uh, the lake fish did very well in them. Uh, when I say lake fish, I'm also referring to lower riverine fish. That means rivers that flow below uh, 500 foot of elevation. 
but the riverine or the whitewater fish, which we call rheophilic fish, they are better bred in cement concrete raceways. A lot of our raceways, I have uh, 50 of them that are 2,500 gallons, and uh, they will not uh, tolerate the high hardness and the calcium concentrate that is, exists in our earthen Florida ponds. So we must raise our lake and lower river fish in the ponds, and we must raise the whitewater or higher elevated fish into our cement raceways. We have uh, several hatcheries. Uh, which have been very prone to me, particularly during any cold periods uh, since 1977, as they're all covered with tubular metal and plastic, and uh, our, our wells are able to maintain a, a minimum of 72 degrees year-round during the worst cold days. Our ponds, our earthen ponds, are covered with plastic and metal, and our temperatures go down to more around 65 to 68 during our coldest periods in the last 30 years. So I differentiate the two animals into those two, two different types of methods of raising fish. Is there kind of a general, or I guess it depends on where they're coming from in terms of temperature tolerance. You, you mentioned a couple of temperatures. What, what kind of lower limits do the riverine versus the more lake-type fish have? Well, the riverines were found as cichlids are found at elevations of uh, 1,500 meters and below. And the fishes that are found uh, roughly at 3,000 feet to 1,000 feet, their temperatures are coming from 72 to 78 degrees. The lake fish, uh, uh, which are the uh, below 1,000 feet, which are rivers, low, large rivers uh, and lakes, they uh, like temperatures of 85 to 90 degrees. That reflects our, uh, our systems that we have. Our ponds get very warm during the summer basically going up to around 85 to 87 degrees, where our hatcheries stay a bit cooler with a shade cloth and the understory cover that we put on them, so we maintain a year-round temperature of 81. It's our general that we reach for, our general temperature, except during the three to four months of winter, where they lower down to around 72 to 75. We're able to breed our river fish during the cooler months of the year. We're already breeding them now in January, till about April or May. Then they cut out because the temperature becomes too warm at 83 to 85. But then in May through August, our lake fish, which are raised in our earthen ponds, go to work because they love the temperatures around 83 to 85 degrees for maximum breeding temperatures. Okay, and pretty much all of these are pair spawning, is that correct, or uh, they no, pair we up? Do everything, we do everything in trios, whether it's in the pond okay. or whether it's in the vats. We find that uh, one male will easily accommodate two to three females, whether it be lake fish or river fish. He'll spawn with one female, then he'll go to the other. That, that's basically how this works. They are not harem spawners like uh, African cichlids. But nevertheless, uh, they're able to uh, service two to three females at a time. Okay, so you kind of cater more to the males. That's just a joke. With, <laughs> with, uh, with regard to some of your endangered species work, um, can you maybe give us a, a couple uh, words on that? Sure. When I started uh, collecting in 1983, there was a vast array of cichlids that were available. Uh, the works by uh, Dr. Charles Reagan in 1905 the works of Salvin uh, from the late 1800s, those animals were all still available till 1983 to 1986. The agricultural runoff that has occurred into uh, Central America, which are basically the frontiers 
they have decimated the species flocks of several fishes, particularly two or three of the genuses. Because of uh, that agricultural runoff of being basically fertilizers, pesticides, and herbicides, the, we have uh, realized that in the last uh, 20, 25 years, that there are 15 to 20 endangered species and five to six extinct species. The, in the uh, frontier basin of uh, Panama and Costa Rica, on both the Caribbean and Pacific slopes, being Central America's land bridge, the longest river is 90 miles long, those populations of all fish in those rivers have disappeared. You'll find snails and you'll find frogs, but you won't find fish particularly in the Rio Colorado region of the Pacific drainage in Costa Rica, Panama, there's a fish called lion's eye, which has become extinct. We were very fortunate in 1993 to locate some lion's eye in a canal uh, from a farmer who had not raised a product, which is palm oil. These palm trees, of course, uh, were fertilized and pesticided, and they had ruined about uh, that uh, complete 90-mile region of the Rio Colorado Basin. On the Atlantic side of the uh, Pacific uh, Ocean, um, at the border of Panama and Costa Rica in the Rio Tellier, there were several fish, uh, Astateros busingi, Astateros ratisma, uh, uh, Arcocentris myrnae, which all had disappeared in a four or five year plan because of the banana plantations uh, owned by Chiquita. We now supply uh, co uh, the government of Costa Rica as well as the uh, University of Costa Rica located in San Juan with uh, project species. They've tried repopulating the rivers and they found that once they get above where uh, in elevation where the bananas and the palm oil is grown, those fishes survive. But that's a very narrow region, uh, which is basically above 2,000-foot altitude. So you're talking about just a few miles of stream. We started releasing them in 1986 into the rivers and never got them back in subsequent explorations for the fishes. So we started cage cultures in those upper regions of those rivers, which were, again, above all the pesticide runoffs, and we were successful in keeping the fishes alive. They're still keeping those fish cages in those upper regions of those rivers as well as rearing them at the University of San Juan in Costa Rica. We've worked the same situation with the government of Mexico with the high riverine uh, rheophilic species from the Perineatribulus complex, but that's more due to urban runoff, which is basically city runoff, drainage, sewers. Um, uh, there, there are a lot of unmonitored and unregulated uh, uh, practices that go on in Central America. I've written several articles about it. I gain no attention to it because those governments, of course, will service the uh, multi-million dollar uh, agricultural concerns. And, of course, they still have uh, unmonitored and unregulated urban runoff from their cities. So by placing many of these cichlids around the world, we are surviving the gene pools on these particular animals, which would totally be gone if it weren't for our efforts uh, as well as two or three other European efforts in keeping these animals alive. Well, that's great. It sounds like a really uh, some important work you're doing. Well, we're going to be at a break, and I, I want to talk with you a little bit more afterward on some of your bestsellers and, and some 
tips for hobbyists who are interested in maybe getting into this group of fish if they haven't really worked with them before. So, so let's take a short break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll continue our discussion of New World Cichlids with Don and get some more information on best husbandry practices. Molly, here's your dinner. (coughs) Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Okay, we're back. And welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. We're continuing our conversation with my guest, Don Conkle, owner of Don Conkle's Tropicals. So, Don, we've got a really good feel for your background and and how you really got involved both on the uh, production kind of commercial side as well as the natural resource side. Which of the fish that you're currently producing would you say are your best sellers? Well, it it depends. I mean, being we uh, ship globally to Europe, uh, Southeast Asia, and America, we all have different preferences. Uh, America tends to be into the really big fish, it's kind of like you walk into a public aquarium and uh, the most people are gathered around the largest fish at all. If there are mammals like dolphins or sharks, you find the crowds there. Of course, they, they notice the little fish and they're there in numbers, but they're not quite like the big fish. America has an appetite for large fish that uh, we can't begin to keep up with the demand with. I'm talking about the basically predatory fish. These fishes are found in all three zones, the lakes, the middle rivers, and the upper rivers. But uh, as they're predatory fish at the uh, apex of their environment, uh, they get quite big and are basically piscivores. And also, America tends to have uh, very large tanks when it comes to cichlid keeping. Europe tends to be into more of the smaller fish. They like uh, more of the substratum sifters, which are more peaceful. More of the herbivores, uh, which are, again, um, slightly smaller in size. When I say that, I'm talking about uh, ranges of 6 inches to 10 inches, uh, where the America market, the purchases from the people tend to be from 10-inch to 15-inch fish. When we come to uh, Asia, they work in colors. Red, gold, orange are very popular with the Asians. Uh, um, In their homes, they uh, represent prosperity as well as uh, money influences. Uh, they're kept in according to colors, a, a little bit different than us Americans or our uh, people across the pond in Europe. Okay. So in America, which, which of the fish would you say tend to be the most popular? And uh, maybe what are some of the important things to know about keeping those fish? Well, in America, um, Cyclosoma feste from Ecuador 
Cyclosoma umbraferis, which has now been identified as Cockatia umbraferis. These are large animals that get uh, a foot to two foot long. They are by far the most popular species, along with the large herbivores from the Vieja complex, Vieja argentia, Vieja regani, Vieja sinspilus. These are fish that get large nuchal humps. Nuchal humps are large protrusion like a golf ball size on the forehead. America uh, loves these large nuchal humps with these large fish. What are the common names for uh, for some of these guys? Like if they were going to a maybe to a store or you know if if they're talking with folks, what would be common names for these fish? To be honest with you, I've been the one that's coined those names as I was the first one to bring these animals into captivity. Okay. Um, like the Perniatrophilus dovi, which I did not get to, I, I coined the wolf cichlid. The Cyclosoma feste from Ecuador is called the Red Terror. The Umbraferis really doesn't have a name. Uh, these are more sophisticated stores. I, I, I cater more to the specialized stores, the retail stores, not to the vast franchise complexes like Petco, PetSmart. Um, those animals are serviced by the larger farmers from Florida, but they don't really get into large Central American cichlids. Okay. Those franchise stores basically carry the same common six that Ross Sokoloff introduced me to in 1983, those being Firemouth Meekies, Nigrofasciatus, which is your convict cichlid. Those animals along that line, they carry Oscars, of course, which do get big, but they're very popular and well-known. As we service the high-end retail stores, basically they're going by the scientific name. They aren't promoted by common names, unfortunately, as they were early in the years. Basically, the Florida fish farmer who has been the one who has went by the common names. Okay. So for some of the ones you mentioned, for example, the, uh, the, the wolf cichlid or the red terror, uh, what are some of the requirements for keeping these fish well, predatory, predatory fish need large aquariums of, of at least 100 gallons. Basically, I, I'm talking about a six-foot footprint, meaning you need a, a six-foot tank. Um, and they, those can come in 75 gallons, but 100 to 125 gallons are the most commonly used tanks to, to house large fish. Diet is one of the main concerns that when you come to these fish. That has not been addressed by the commercial industries who produce tropical fish food. I'm talking namely Tetra and Wardleys. They produce high-protein foods, which are great for Oscars and good for lake fish, uh, like the Lake Malawi fish. But uh, these Central American fish require a higher fiber in their diet. We are mixing all our fish. Uh, one of the most commonly asked questions is, what do you feed them and uh, what size tank do I put them in? Fishes that are under 10 inches can be kept well in 55-gallon uh, to 100-gallon aquariums. Fishes over 10 inches require larger territory, and they require 100 to 125-gallon aquariums, though there are many, many customers who have much larger aquaria than these. But we're finding that the diet being the premier feature of keeping all these fishes alive. We mix koi food, which is high in fiber and low in protein, along with the common produced foods commercially by American vendors, which are very high in protein and very low in fiber. It's like eating a steak without eating a vegetable or eating a potato with it. It will, uh, it will harm the guts and the stomachs of these fishes, and they will get diseases. When the commercial uh, food manufacturers come out with a high fiber, 
high-protein feed, they will then encompass the material needs of these particular animals from Central and South America. So most everyone now is, is mixing koi food along with the average cichlid food or your average high-protein food that's found in the stores or the wholesale manufacturers. Okay. So what, I guess going back to their origins, what would they be eating in nature that would give them well, more we, fiber? We cut, yeah, we've cut the guts open, the stomachs on these animals. And even your most predatory or most piscivore fish still contains 60 to 65% detritus in their stomachs and in their intestines. This fiber is compromised of uh, fallen twigs, uh, leaves, fruits, nuts, and decaying trees which fall by the river's edge or the lake's edge. This detritus or decaying material is uh, over half of their uh, contents in their stomachs. Though they, we look at a piscivore as eating uh, guppies or goldfish, their true dietary requirements in nature are quite different than what we think. Okay. Now, what about mixing species? Can you mix species of, of these different fish together, or what are kind of territorial issues? Sure. Now, well, it's best done by their feeding behavior. The uh, smaller fish tend to be substratum sifters and omnivores. Uh, omnivores are fishes that uh, basically go down to 6 to 10 feet. They're eating detritus. Um, and they're eating algae. They're basically, they're algae grazers because the, the sun can penetrate the upper six foot of a lake or the upper six feet of any river. Those fishes tend to grow smaller in numbers. They behave, uh, they behave quite significantly different. They group flock. They work in large, large groups of fishes in the hundreds. They're kept up there because they don't want to go to the lower, deeper rivers or the lower sections of the lakes where the predatory fish hang out. Uh, the predatory fish prefer darker water. Their diet, though they do eat detritus, because the uh, detritus is found throughout the lake's bottoms or the river bottoms. But these uh, smaller fish are the ones that can be held in smaller aquariums, of course, being they're basically six to eight inches. And those are the substratum sifters and the omnivores. Those are best kept together. Now, your larger herbivores that get to be large in size, 12 to 15 inches, along with your predatory fish, which basically grow 10 inches to 2 feet, are the best ones housed together. We're really looking at size as a requirement, size of the aquarium as a requirement for the large growing fishes. And, of course, smaller aquariums uh, down to 30 gallons is quite applicable for fishes which do not get above 6 inches in length. So for the smaller aquaria and maybe people that are getting started, what are uh, some of the more common species, I guess, that would maybe be kind of more European in, um, in flavor, as you mentioned earlier? What, which species would those be? That would be, uh, there are three genuses that are uh, basically substratum sifters and omnivores. They are the Arcocentris, which are compromised, uh, most commonly known by uh, convicts or um, negrofasciatus. But there are many of those different color variations. They're different species, such as Myrne, which is known as topaz, Septum fasciatus, which common name is sunburst cichlids, Spinocismus, which is called the uh, pepper cichlid. These are fishes that only grow to five, six inches in length. Then your Therichthys species, which is most commonly known as the firemouth miki. We have the uh, yellow miki from Guatemala, which is Therichthys affinis, Therichthys passionis, Therichthys helleri. Then we get into your Astateros grouping, which uh, Dr. Leonard Rowe and myself coined in 1996, 
These are your substratum sifters, such as Dataherosa rostratus, uh, which is your horse-nosed cichlid, uh, Robertsoni, your turquoise cichlid, Altafrons, your Bonet cichlid, Rotisma, your emerald cichlid. These uh, different substratum sifters and the smaller omnivores are some of the most commonly started with fish. Many of these fishes can be housed in pairs in 29 to 30-gallon aquariums. Rarely do I suggest a hobbyist start a Central American tank with a 20-gallon tank, but the, uh, the main feature of raising all these animals is to buy numbers of six. The reason I say that, at the store, they're going to be, be able to buy them at the cheapest, uh, basically uh, to a $8 cost per animal. And when they raise them in series of six, they mainly want to breed them as their, their behavior is what attracts people to Central American and South American animals. Being they hang in pairs, basically in smaller aquariums, they can be housed easily, and um, uh, they can grow these animals up so they bond out. It's uh, somewhat difficult to go out and buy six, eight-inch fishes from different stores and put them together and expect them to get along. Where if they raise them from smaller animals, let's say inch and a half to three inches, where they have time to bond out and grow together till they reach maturity, then they become quite peaceful in that arrangement of those bonded groupings. Okay, so how long would it take if they got maybe an inch, two-inch fish before you know they were starting to become mature and, and, and pairing up? Basically, uh, these animals need to be four inches to be mature. And uh, we're talking about an average of six months in the uh, local aquarium. That's under normal feeding conditions, which okay. are t- two times a day. So uh, I guess another question you kind of talked a little bit about in the wild. Is there any specific water quality parameters like hardness or pH, anything like that, that would maybe be drastically different among some of these different groups? With Central America, it's the same as Florida and most of the United States. They basically like uh, pH requirements between 7 and 8. They're highly adaptable to the, the different pH levels. Our hardnesses are moderately hard. Um, I know of nowhere in the United States that people can't keep cichlids quite easily in their aquariums. Now, the problem we have in America are with the Amazonian cichlids, which are a little farther south than the animals I've been speaking of. Their pH tolerances are uh, a little bit more narrow. They prefer the uh, 6.8 to the 7.2 water, which is more neutral. But uh, by and large, America has hard water, uh, high pH and high hardness. So, uh, and same with Europe. Some of the southeastern Asian people, we've noticed that these hard water fishes do quite well in their softer water of Southeast Asia. So they have w- quite wide tolerances of uh, dealing with water chemistry. So it sounds like there's definitely a lot of beauty and color to these fish, and, and their behaviors are really fascinating. I know I've watched some of them myself. Where can someone go to get more information on some of these specific species? I, I know you've got some books potentially, or are there other sources? Do you want to talk about that real well, I, I, with People interested in cichlids, uh, we have a great network called the American Cichlid Association, or the ACA. It's probably the largest association of fish keepers in America. Overseas, we have the BCA, the, uh, which is in England, the British Cichlid Association. And in every country in Europe, they have their own cichlid associations. Now, we have here, for instance, in Tampa, the Tampa Bay Aquarium Society. 
though the Tampa Bay people tend to keep about one-third cichlids and two-thirds other mixed species, it might be because of the fact that uh, the vast majority of my animals are exported. Very few of the animals are sold in Florida. I do that as a business practice, though I do accommodate the, uh, of the local groups in Florida with the cichlids whenever uh, they want and uh, whatever they would like. Okay. But the Joint Local Aquarium Society is the best place to start, or the National American Cichlid Association. That's, uh, that's great advice, definitely. Well, I've got so many more questions, but unfortunately we're, we're out of time. Uh, I definitely want to thank you, Don, and our producers, including Mark Winter, for making this show possible. Are, are there any final words you have, Don? I'm going to do my best to try to get some pictures of your fish, and we'll definitely have your website on uh, the, uh, the webpage for this show. But did you have any final words for uh, our listeners? Well, basically, um, we're dealing with two different types of businesses uh, in America. We're dealing with the large franchise stores who carry what I call starter fish. They keep carrying the same hundred species over and over. The, uh, the small shops, which have been pushed aside by these large franchise stores, have uh, evolved over the last 10 years since franchising began. Those are your specialty stores. Uh, but they're starting to come back. Those specialty stores, uh, they deal with fishes that they cannot get at the franchise stores. And we've noticed uh, a large resurgence our sales are up 75% over the last 36 months, where I think some of the large franchise stores, their sales have uh, basically been down about 25%. I think what's important, whether it's cichlids or just any type of tropical fish, is that uh, we keep some of these gene pools that are disappearing in Africa, South America, and Central America uh, viable. Um, we don't realize how quickly the fish are disappearing, and only because of captive bred raising are we able to keep many of these fishes alive. And, uh, of course, the interest uh, has to be supplied uh, by the hobbyist, but he goes back to the information from his store, whether it be a franchise store or a retail store with specific type fish or specialty fish. And to just keep these gene pools intact is what's going to be so important, not so much over the next five or ten years, but much more so over the next 20 to 50 years. That's great, Dan. And you're definitely right. There's a lot of changes going on, and uh, hopefully we can keep many of these species that are, are going extinct in, in uh, home aquaria and eventually hopefully release back into the wild. Thanks again, Don, for joining us. Please be sure to check out Don's webpages. We'll have those available on the Aquarium Mania show for this particular show's uh, website. I encourage all of you to visit my Aquarium Mania blog on Pet Life Radio. I'll try to include more pictures there. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy, that's D-R-R-O-Y, at PetLifeRadio.com. If you're ever in Florida, please be sure to visit the Aquarium Mania exhibit at the Florida Aquarium in Tampa, one of my favorite aquariums. Until next time, please visit your local aquarium stores and keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.